When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Support for Start Making Sense comes from The Sun Does Shine by Anthony Ray Hinton. The Sun Does Shine is the inspiring memoir of a wrongly accused man who found life and freedom on death row. Archbishop Desmond Tutu says The Sun Does Shine restores our faith in the inherent goodness of humanity. Brian Stevenson writes that Hinton's story will inspire our nation and readers all over the world. The Sun Does Shine, available wherever books are sold, from St. Martin's Press. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we're going to talk about Facebook and internet privacy. A lot of people were surprised when they learned that Facebook gave their data to private companies that sold it for political purposes. But not Mika Sifri. He's been warning about Facebook's business model for years. We'll speak with him later in the show. Also, Congress finally passed a budget last week. Republicans rejected some of Trump's favorite issues, including his little-known proposal that libraries receive zero funding. What's he got against libraries? Sue Halperin of the New York Review will comment. She just wrote a novel centering around a library. But first, we're still thinking about kids and guns after that magnificent March for Our Lives on Sunday. For comment, we turn to George Zornick. Of course, he's Washington editor of The Nation. George, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me back. Well, we record in L.A. Here we watch the Washington March on TV. We listened on the radio and seeing all those kids with their raised fists and their tear-streaked faces was pretty unforgettable. You were there. You talked to people. What was it like? Though this is such a, a, a kind of dire topic, I mean, it's people who are dying every single day, uh, 96 people every single day at, at the end of a gun. The, the march had a very kind of upbeat and positive and energetic and like, this is a fight and we're going to win it sort of tone. You know, obviously the, the kids are the ones who are leading this and they are actually the only ones who spoke from the stage, but you had all kinds of people there to support him. There were a ton of teachers. Everywhere you looked, there were teachers. There were doctors. I interviewed an ER doctor from uh, Virginia University of Virginia Medical Center in, in Charlottesville who basically is sick of, of treating people who come into his ER with gunshot wounds, and he was out there marching in his uh, white coat. So it was, a, it was a broad array of folks out there, and it was actually very mixed. I, racially, I would say it was much more um, balanced between white and black and protesters than, than the Women's March was, which is no criticism of the Women's March, but it, it was certainly something that stuck out to me when we were out there. Well, they say there were 800 sibling marches throughout the country. I know here in L.A., tens of thousands of people marched downtown at City Hall, and there were satellite rallies in many uh, outlying areas. Uh, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul. In St. Paul, 
20,000 people marched on the state capitol where they were joined by kids from that Parkland High School who were members of the school hockey team who were in St. Paul for a national hockey tournament. And the Parkland kids gave some tearful speeches at the Minnesota State Capitol about what had happened at their school. Uh, There were hundreds of students marching in Duluth, and there were other March for Our Lives events elsewhere in the far north of Minnesota at Ely, which is the access point to the Boundary Waters Canoe Area at Grand Rapids, and Grand Marais on the north shore of Lake Superior up by the Canadian border. This thing was going on all over the country. Yeah, it was really stunning to watch these images roll in. I'm I'm from Buffalo, New York, and I, I know from people there and looking on Facebook, there was a very massive, uh, especially for that town, uh, demonstration downtown. You know, it's something, this gun violence has been happening in the background in, in cities and towns across the country for decades. And it's not just, you know, I, I think everyone has some kind of experience about it. If it's not someone who was, uh, murdered by a gun, you know, maybe it's someone who was injured when they accidentally discharged it or or someone who killed themselves. I mean, you know, one of the silly fact checks I thought that came out this week from PolitiFact was that David Hogg, one of the Parkland students, said at, at the March for Our Lives that 96 people a day die from from a gun. And PolitiFact said, oh, no, well, yes, but a lot of those are suicides, so that's not really true. You know, (laughs) Why is that a but? Well, it shouldn't be a but. I mean, violence is violence, whether you direct it against yourself or or someone else. And there's no question that, you know, if someone is in a a moment of personal crisis, having a a gun in the drawer next to them is not a good thing. And that the, the presence of guns in America not only shoots up the homicide rate, but it but it increases the the suicide rate by giving people a, a very easy way to to do that if they're kind of having a crisis. So, you know, I think that's silly, and I think it's something that a lot of people have experienced or know someone who's experienced it, and I think that's why there were so many people out in the streets. Yeah, if you, if you ask uh, gun advocates, you know, why do you need this gun, they will tell you, oh, you know, if an intruder comes into your house and rapes your wife and kills your children and steals everything you've worked for, you know, don't you want to be able to defend yourself? Well, the answer to that is many more guns in the home are used for suicide rather than for killing or, or fending off intruders. And uh, to me, that's the single most devastating uh, fact there is about guns at home. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's it's funny, too, that the NRA tries to flip this on its head in terms of um, domestic violence. You know, they've they've tried in in the past couple of years to um, kind of almost make guns a, a feminist issue. And I mean, if you remember the speech that Chris Cox, the executive director of the NRA, gave at the RNC in Cleveland uh, two years ago, you know, his whole speech was premised on the idea that, like, if you're a woman, you should have a gun because you can protect yourself against uh, rapists and domestic abuse and things like that. Well, the research shows very clearly that if, if domestic violence is occurring in a home, the presence of a gun makes it much more likely that that woman um, is going to be injured or killed than it does that she will be able to uh, somehow fend off her attacker. So this is something that they that they try to spin, but the, the facts just don't back it up. Let's let's talk for a minute here about some of the other um, responses directly to the march. I, I noticed the NRA itself uh, was pretty quiet, at least the day of the march, Sunday, but the former GOP Senator Rick Santorum suggested that students who were uh, marching for gun control, he said, would be better served 
by taking CPR classes. Congressman Adam Schiff offered Santorum some advice. He said, if you find yourself in the position of attacking the motives of students who survived a massacre a few weeks ago and are speaking out to save others, you should stop. I thought that's pretty good advice. <laughs> it is, and I, and I was struck by how um, basically nihilistic Santorum's advice was, and it's something that I think a lot of anti-gun control politicians sort of embrace, which is just this idea that these shootings are going to happen. People are going to die, and they might die in mass numbers, and it might be in high school, and there's nothing you can do about it. Stop bothering politicians. Stop advocating for change. Just learn some CPR so that when it does happen, um, maybe you can resuscitate some of the classmates you have that are gunned down. That That is deeply fatalistic and nihilistic, and I think out of step with kind of the positive energy, like I say, that, that was out in the streets this past weekend. Well, you have a new piece coming out uh, at thenation.com this week, which argues that the march has radically disrupted gun control politics in America. Tell us, uh, tell us what, your, uh, what your argument is here. Well, one of the interesting things that I, I think jumped out to a lot of people from watching the march was, was how many speakers they had from the inner city, how many speakers of color who were, who were calling out the fact, the very obvious fact, that actually a, a disproportionate number of the people who die by guns are, are people of color who live in the city. And there's been this weird disconnect even in the kind of post-Newtown gun control movement where it's, it's overly focused on mass shootings, first of all. And particularly mass shootings that happen, you know, out in the suburbs at an elementary school or a movie theater or someone um, shoots up the shopping mall. And those are surely very tragic. And I, and I want to tread lightly and say that I'm quite, quite certain from many years of, of interviewing these groups that they do care deeply about the gun violence that's happening every day in our cities. But, but the, the bottom line is that less than one-tenth of the American population lives in neighborhoods that experience over a fifth of the gun violence. And to be blunt, I mean, a lot of the um, post-Newtown gun control movement has has kind of focused on the white lives that have been lost. And there were, so there were a lot of activists on stage Saturday saying, you know, these, these black lives matter too. And, and the, the daily toll that is happening in our inner cities that get you know, one paragraph dispatches in the in the middle of the paper, oh, you know, someone was shot on such and such a street, you know, no suspects. Uh, it's something that the gun control movement is going to have to really confront head on if they actually do want to make a dent in that horrific number of over 13,000 people killed each year in the country by guns, because by and large, that is not happening in, in mass shootings. The The gun issue is not really a Trump issue. Of course, predates Trump by quite a bit. But in some ways, doesn't the presence of Trump in the White House uh, maybe even make it easier for gun control advocates to make their case? Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking about this question a lot this week, um, whether, say, say uh, you know, a few thousand votes in, in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania went the other way and Hillary Clinton was president, would, but everything else happened the same. Would we have seen people out in the streets this past weekend? And I think the answer is probably no, which is pretty interesting because the legislative outcome would still have been the same, right? I mean, Congress, Republicans would have controlled at least one House of Congress, if not both. There would have been no uh, meaningful new federal legislation. So why, why wouldn't people have been out? And I think it's because particularly with 
Trump in the White House and being so um, recalcitrant and just immediately shutting down any hope of, of new legislation and saying, oh, we should arm teachers. I, I think that has really driven home the fact that the political system is not responsive to a lot of these demands. And I think that if Hillary Clinton were president and maybe there were some sort of half measures that were all she was able to get through, there would be some executive orders or, or this or that, it might have almost taken some of the, the political steam and urgency out of this. And so I think that paradoxically, while the gun control movement wishes that there were a president in the White House who um, would really advocate and agitate for change, the fact that there's not and the fact that the gun control movement is essentially out of political power at, at, at every level, every federal level anyway, it's really driving a lot of the, the activism and the energy that's out there. And let's talk for a minute about what the immediate goals are. We know that universal background checks for any transfer of a firearm is has widespread support, should be an easy law to pass if it were up to the public. These uh, assault weapons are not popular in America. If it were up to the public, those would be banned. The ban and the background check are not going to happen in Congress. There are the states, of course, and we record our show in California. California has very strict uh, restrictions. There are no assault rifles that can be purchased in California. The sheriffs can deny concealed weapon permits to applicants who, in their opinion, don't have plausible uh, reasons. So are, are we going to see more issues in the states in the, next, uh, in the coming year? Yeah, I think that's where a lot of stuff um, has been happening and, and will continue to happen. You know, there, there was a wave of legislation after Newtown where states like New York and, and Connecticut passed assault weapons bans. We saw just in the past couple of weeks, Florida pass kind of a mild gun control package. I mean, they, they raised the age to 21 where you can get a gun, and they put in a three-day waiting period. They kind of shoved aside the, the larger issue of expanded background checks and banning assault rifles. But for such a, a republic, you know, it's Republican-controlled and a very pro-gun legislature, that was at least progress. So I I think on the state level, a lot of people will be pushing. But I think what's also important is that the movement is starting to think beyond sort of these very necessary but relatively smaller bore things like background checks and and banning the big magazines. I mean, now that they're out of power, it's time to think big. I mean, when Obama was president, it was all about, okay, like, what can we achieve? What can we get through Congress? And so you had all this stuff about background checks. Never mind that a background check wouldn't have stopped the Newtown shooting, I mean, that we should absolutely implement them, but it wasn't a, a, actually a direct response that would have stopped that shooting, nor nor the shooting in Parkland. But now, you know, you, you start to see people thinking outside the box. I mean, it was remarkable this week that Justice Stevens, who's retired from the Supreme Court, he's in his 90s, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times saying we should repeal the Second Amendment. I mean, he outright proposed a constitutional amendment passed by the states to just repeal the Second Amendment. So I, I think broadly that gun control activists are starting to think outside the box and kind of be maximalist in their demands. And that's what's interesting in in part about these kids is they're not political actors. They're not sort of trying to build consensus and take low-hanging legislative fruit and and things like that, which sounds, if you're in D.C., maybe that sounds bad, but I I think it's actually a good thing that they just have these maximalist demands and this very clear moral cry that, like, there are too many guns and people are dying and this is not acceptable. So I, I think that the boundaries of the debate are, are really have expanded in the past month or six weeks. 
George Zornick, his article on how the Parkland kids are radically disrupting gun control politics is out this week at thenation.com. George, it's always great to have you on the show. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having me. Now it's time to talk about Facebook and Internet privacy. For that, we turn to Mika Sifri. He's co-founder and president of Civic Hall, which is devoted to the use of technology for the public good. He's written many books, including The Big Disconnect, Why the Internet Hasn't Transformed Politics Yet. And his work has appeared in The New York Times, The American Prospect, Wired, and The Nation, where he's been an editor. Mika, welcome to the program. Good to be here, John. As many as maybe 50 million Facebook users recently learned that their data had been swept up and that they may have unknowingly given away their own information and also their friends, we're told they did that by clicking on an app for a personality quiz, which got their info and then sold it to a political targeting firm called Cambridge Analytica, which ended up working for the Trump campaign in the 2016 elections. A lot of people were surprised to learn that Facebook gave their data to private companies that sold it for political purposes, but I don't think you were. Yeah, no, this is a problem that uh, a couple of us have been trying to warn people about now for years, ever since big social networking platforms like Facebook became the de facto playing field for, you know, politics online. And five, six years ago, when Barack Obama, uh, you know, won re-election, it was all the rage that, you know, look what a brilliant job they had done collecting people's data and using it to target them more effectively or using them using it to raise money more effectively or to spend advertising money more effectively. You know, this was the... The, the moment of big data and campaigns considered to be the secret weapon that uh, enabled Obama to beat Romney. The um, attorney generals of 37 states are asking Mark Zuckerberg, is our Facebook data safe and secure? And the FTC is mm-hmm. investigating Facebook mm-hmm. for what they call a misuse of data in what they call a, quote, data breach. Would you call this a data breach? Well... The word breach implies that, you know, somebody got in there in an unauthorized way and took the data. And so it's, you know, it makes it sound like data, that Facebook here was breached by some outside force. And that's not the right word, because, in fact, this was Facebook itself has been authorizing millions of app developers to build games and other kinds of interactives on their platform going back several years, and doing very, very little to check to see whether those app developers were actually holding on to the data that they were, that they were then getting their hands on and using it appropriately. Mm-hmm. Now Facebook says they're going to go and investigate and, and, and check you know, forensically to see if that were the case. But it's already clear that you know, to anybody who's been following this closely – that you know, these barn doors have been open for a very long time. The only thing that Cambridge Analytica did that slightly different is that they didn't take, they didn't build the app themselves. They bought the data from an academic 
who had, you know, created this personality app. But as you know, I've pointed out in some of my writing, in 2012, the Obama campaign created an app called I'm In, and they invited their supporters to click on it and join, and about a million people voluntarily chose to do that. And the theory there was that then Obama's campaign would be able to give you personalized content that they would then encourage you to share with your friends. And this worked very well. They called it targeted sharing. It was a big factor in in helping boost turnout and in moving messages, you know, in in timely ways around whatever the, the message was that the campaign wanted to communicate. But the campaign itself, insiders who worked on this, have said that in the course of getting a million people to join in, they actually were able to harvest their word the information on 98% of all of Facebook's adult American users at the time. How is that possible that since since 98% of, of Facebook users were not Obama supporters and didn't register, didn't, didn't become uh, uh, followers of the Obama uh, Facebook page? Because the, when, you, when those first million people click and say, I'm in, they were authorizing access not just to their own personal information, but to the information of the people who were their friends. And that is a a design feature of Facebook. And so the knowledge, uh, and and so all those other people didn't give authorization. You know, this is like, it's the difference between you giving me your phone number and me giving someone else your phone number, okay, because I have it. As your friend, you, you know, you may trust me not to give away your phone number. Okay, we have sort of an implicit understanding, right? Like it's private. But in this case, Facebook treated that friend relationship as permission in the reverse direction, which is that it became okay if I said you can know everything that Facebook knows about me. That includes knowing who my friends are and what they've said about themselves on their Facebook profile pages. There is one difference between you giving people my phone number and what's happening at Facebook, which is Facebook's business model is that they will sell my information to make billions of dollars and make Mark Zuckerberg the third richest person in, what, the history of humanity or something. Yes, yes, this this is exactly right. And so we call this a platform monopoly, and we think it's gotten too big and too powerful, and it has not been properly overseen by government regulators. I mean, the fact that these attorney general, attorneys general and the FTC are acting now is good, but they've had the power to investigate for years, and they've been asleep at the switch. The FTC actually, back in 2011, in response to prior complaints about Facebook playing fast and loose with its users, private information, got Facebook to agree to a consent decree, which in theory now gives the FTC the power to go and enforce huge fines, $40,000 per violation. Wow. I mean, they could bankrupt the company or pay off the, the national debt. Take your, your pick. <laughs> um, and, and, and maybe they will impose some tough uh, measures. We doubt it. Uh, don't forget, this is a company with a lot of political power. They've done a lot over the years to ingratiate themselves with both, with you know, the leadership of both political parties. Sheryl Sandberg, the number two at Facebook, who's been a little bit less visible in the current scandal, came out of the Clinton administration um, and is still deeply tied to power brokers in the Democratic Party. So we, you know, it's doubtful that there's going to be tough regulation here, but it is good 
that there's finally a big wake-up call happening. I noticed that you have a Facebook page. You are not quitting Facebook. Shouldn't we all quit Facebook? Wouldn't that teach them a lesson or something? The problem with a consumer boycott is that if every, literally, if every American user of Facebook quit tomorrow, uh, the company's total user base would only go down by 10%. Oh, man. So, you know, this, 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 I refer to this as Facebookistan. It's the <laughs> largest country in the world. It has 2.1 billion wow. members. Wow. So, practically speaking, it's a little bit of a luxury to talk about quitting as if that's going to change their behavior, right? Like, that is not the move if you think it's going to make them suddenly uh, behave better. Uh, the move is to use our power as citizens of the United States, not of Facebookistan, <laughs> where we have very few rights, to demand that the government and the powers that be enforce the law. And if the law isn't strong enough, that we strengthen the privacy laws. The Europeans are taking some steps in the right direction. I mean, they are asking these big platform companies to get the affirmative okay every time you are engaged with them that you are saying, yes, you can have my data, and yes, you can use it for the following purposes, and explain in clear English, not in eight-point type. I've said to people for a long time, and it is not just my uh, quote, but any time you are using the Internet where you are not paying for the service, you need to understand that that's because you are the product being sold. And if you are comfortable with that trade-off, fine. But that if you're not, you either have to pay for things because they're valuable and you want to have some control, or you have to demand, like in the case of Facebook, that we get tougher government regulation so that these kinds of privacy scandals, it's not a breach, this is their business model. So that it's no longer possible. And if that means that breaking up the company is the only way to do it and Mark Zuckerberg uh, has to stop being the third richest man in the world, so be it. Is there a realistic possibility that we could break up Facebook? Yes, I think there is for the same reason that uh, in past cycles we broke up AT&T and we broke up Microsoft. You know, there has been tough antitrust enforcement before. It's cyclical. And obviously, we, and it isn't just Facebook, by the way, we may need to look at Amazon, we may need to look at Google, because these are also big platform monopolies that are abusing their power, too, in, in ways perhaps not as, as troubling as certainly the case we're talking about now. But I think the answer is yes, this is possible. Don't forget, it is still a competitive industry, and there are, Facebook does have enemies who would also be interested in seeing it broken up, because they have acted in ways that are deeply anti-competitive to new startups. What Facebook does now is it doesn't innovate, it buys its competition. And that's a serious question in and of itself. I would say, for starters, the one thing we may see happen sooner rather than later is that regulators come in and say, you know what, Facebook, for the next five years, you don't get to buy any of your competition. You don't get to buy Instagram. You don't get to buy Snapchat. You, you know, these new things get to develop on their own. Citizens of Facebook, a stand unite. Mika Sifri wrote about internet privacy and public policy for the nation this week. Thank you, Mika. Thanks, John. Great to talk with you. Maybe you haven't heard the news. I hadn't. 
Donald Trump is going after libraries, public libraries. You know those places where people check out books and kids do their homework after school? For comment, we turn to Sue Halpern. She's a scholar in residence at Middlebury College and a contributor to The Nation. She's also written for The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The New York Review of Books, and Rolling Stone. The last time we talked, it was about Edward Snowden. She's written several books of fiction and nonfiction. The newest is her novel, Summer Hours at the Robber's Library. It's just been published. We reached her today in Middlebury, Vermont. Sue Halpern, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. Well, Donald Trump has done so many terrible things, and here's another. What is he doing to public libraries? I I miss this story. Tell us about it. Well, most libraries are funded by a combination of money that is local, that is state, and that comes from the federal government. So the federal government contribution isn't huge, but it's significant because libraries, as you can imagine, often operate kind of close to the margin. And the Trump proposed budget for 2019 essentially eliminates all public funding for libraries, uh, for public libraries in this country. And um, he tried that before in the, the previous budget that he submitted, and Congress did not go for it. But it's pretty clear that, that this is something he's gunning for. You know something about libraries in struggling urban neighborhoods and poor rural areas. Tell us about that. My husband and I moved from New York City, where uh, I spent a lot of time in the New York Public Library. It's where I wrote my uh, Ph.D. thesis. And we moved to this town that was very, very remote and did not have a public library. And through a series of uh, coincidences, I guess, um, I was asked, along with the two other people in my town, to start a library. And we're given $15,000 to start a library in our little, very, very remote town. And that $15,000 was supposed to cover our books and our heating and our te- uh, telephone and the salary of a kind of magical and unyet found uh, librarian. And kind of miraculously, it all came together, and we did do that. And what we found was that the town, which had been kind of falling on hard times, was, was, was revived by this institution, by this very small change in the kind of social fabric, um, because suddenly there was a place for people to, to go. There was a place for people who normally wouldn't have anything to do with each other, to spend time with each other, to bump into each other to have conversations um, that they wouldn't have had otherwise, and it changed the, the dynamic in this town. And if you were to go there now, the library is thriving and the town is thriving. You wrote a piece for the nation.com about Trump and libraries. I, I never thought I'd ask a question like this before, but you quote from the Public Library Association's Statement of Principles. I have to admit I'd never read it. It's actually a fascinating document, Tell us what it says. Basically, it says that uh, libraries exist for the education and, I suppose, entertainment of everybody, regardless of who they are, regardless of their age or their income or their immigration status or, you know, any other thing. Libraries are fundamental to the democracy that was created, you know, by our 
founding fathers, and and it's always been so. And so this document that the Library Association came up with simply codifies that, even though it might sound kind of radical, it really isn't. It really is just saying, you know, hey, we're a democratic institution. We record our show in Los Angeles, the L.A. Public Library, is an amazing and wonderful institution. Of course, it's, you know, a thousand times bigger than the one in your little town. It's huge, 64 community branches, eight regional branches, a magnificent central library downtown. In poor neighborhoods of L.A., sometimes the library is the only safe place for kids to go after school. It's often the nicest place in their neighborhood. The libraries in L.A. provide homework help to kids every day. They have free public computers. They say there are 2,600 free public computers in L.A. at public libraries. They run literacy classes for adults in 21 libraries in L.A. They help adults who are out of school get high school diplomas. If you're a new immigrant, you can get help at several libraries with stuff like fee waiver applications, green card renewals. There are several public libraries in L.A. that even help homeless people find work, food, housing, and other services. And, of course, they have tons of books, including books in all lots of foreign languages, including uh, Spanish. So I guess we can see why Trump would be against all this. Right. So it's, just, it's part of this sort of overall attack, first on kind of education and second on the notion that we have something to share with each other. I mean, libraries are sharing places. You know, we're dealing with uh, an administration and a president who doesn't believe in sharing. And, yeah, I mean, they, they provide services that no other public institution provides, and all within this rubric of, of a library. So, so, you know, get rid of the library, and you almost immediately get rid of literacy classes, citizenship classes, services for poor people who might not have, you know, access to high-speed Internet. I mean, you could go on and on and on. It's just part of that kind of overall big tent attempt to atomize and separate us and kind of dumb us down. Let's talk specifically about library services for immigrants. It's not just the L.A. Public Library that does that. And library services for immigrants have come under attack in some places from Trumpish people. Uh, you wrote about a library in suburban Chicago. What was the story there? The story there was that they were simply having um, what they've often had, which was a, uh, an, information sta- uh, an information session for people who were new immigrants. And they started getting hate calls from individuals telling them that they were going to call ICE and that ICE was going to come and raid it and that they had no right to be helping these people try to become citizens of the United States. And they got to the point where they decided it was so divisive and so hateful that they canceled this event. And the thing is that that they had been holding classes like that for years, and many, many libraries do. I mean, it's part of the mission of the library to help people to become literate, and part of becoming literate is becoming a literate citizen. So this this is threatening to certain people for some inexplicable reason. You have a new novel just published. It's called Summer Hours at the Robbers Library. 
In one scene, a group of new immigrants are told by a librarian that they can take out as many books as they'd like and that it's free. How does that work out in your book? It's actually a really uh, kind of poignant scene um, because this is a community where one of those sort of poorish communities in the United States where refugees are uh, resettled. And so there are a lot of new immigrants in this community, and they go to the library because their kids are learning English, and they go to the library to learn English as well. And they've, when they find out that they can just take out books and you know, they don't have to pay for it, they start bringing lots of like shopping bags and just filling them up because it seems like the most amazing, most American opportunity that has ever been. It just confirms every good thing they think about this country. And tell us more about your new novel, Summer Hours at the Robbers Library. So Summer Hours is a story about three people who have, have experienced some kind of upheaval in their life, all very different, and they're very different kinds of people who end up in this library in a kind of failing industrial New England town. And in this library, they find themselves and they find each other. And it is this way of kind of besting the, the traumas that they've experienced. It, the library is this place where they can kind of be quiet and be themselves and fall into books and fall into each other. And we heard a little barking in the background there. Would you like to tell us about who's doing the barking? Yes, that is Berkey. <laughs> Berkey is about to turn two. And I was just thinking, so this book was written after my last book, which was about our previous dog. And that book is called um, A Dog Walks Into a Nursing Home. And it's about the work that my dog Pransky and I did um, as a therapy dog team in a nursing home. And this book, Summer Hours, at the Roberts Library, it was written between dogs. And, and a good thing, that is, because this puppy is a very, very active puppy, and I don't think I would have gotten the book written if I was trying to uh, corral her at the same time. Sue Halpern, her new novel is Summer Hours at the Roberts Library. She wrote about Trump's attack on libraries at thenation.com. Thank you, Sue. Thank you, John. One update since we taped that segment, the Republicans in Congress rejected Trump's proposed cuts for libraries, and the budget they passed last week contained $9 million more for libraries than it did last year. Also, the Innovative Approaches to Literacy program will see $27 million restored to its budget. Trump, of course, first threatened to veto the entire budget, but later the same day signed the bill. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our show is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. 
and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.